Hi, I'm Paul Jay. Welcome to the analysis.news podcast. Please don't forget there's a donate button at the top of the webpage. Across the country, in numbers not seen before, progressive candidates are running for office in this election. Many have never run for office before, and many are women. And one of them is Kathy Kunkel. She's the Democratic nominee for Congress in the second district of West Virginia. That's a district that's been a Republican bastion for 20 years. As an energy policy expert, Kathy has testified before the West Virginia Public Service Commission and lobbied the legislature to defeat corporate bailouts for electric utilities, defend the state's rooftop solar laws, and strengthen energy efficiency programs. She's also co-founded Advocates for a Safer Water System, a community organization that fought for three years to win improvements to the safety of the drinking water after a chemical spill contaminated the water supply for Charleston area in 2014. Kathy's running for Congress as part of West Virginia Can't Wait, a coalition of dozens of West Virginia candidates who have pledged not to take corporate money in their campaigns. And she moved to West Virginia around 10 years ago, if I have it correctly, and to do just this, to organize on environmental issues. Uh, and here she is now running for Congress. And not only that, here she is on our podcast. Uh, thanks for joining us, Kathy. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here, Paul. So uh, let me ask you the obvious question to start with, and then we can get into some of the issues, but why the heck are you running in a district that has been a Republican stronghold for at least 20 years? In fact, if I understand it correctly, no Democrat even wanted to run in this district. Like you just said, okay, I'll do it. And it was an uncontested primary. And I assume uncontested because no other Democrat thought they could win. And lo and behold, here comes the pandemic and you actually could win this thing. It's a pretty, it's a pretty crazy story. Um, you know, I, like you said, I moved to West Virginia a decade ago. Um, I certainly, when I moved here, had no intention of, of ever running for Congress here in the second congressional district or anywhere else, quite frankly. Um, but I have been very involved in community and environmental issues here over the last decade. Um, and I've just been frustrated more and more by the lack of political leadership uh, on, in, on energy and economic transition issues here in West Virginia. You know, we're a we're a state that's been dominated by extractive industry, by the coal and gas industries for for decades, um, and we've perpetually been one of the poorest states in the country. And you know, now that the coal industry has been collapsing here for the last decade and and going from bankruptcy to bankruptcy, our political leaders from both parties, frankly, just keep making empty political promises about how they're going to bring back the coal industry and. You know, my my opinion is that we need to be doing something different here. We need to figure out how we're going to to actually manage this transition in a way that is good for working people, that revitalizes our economy here, and that diversifies our economy so that we're not just a sort of extractive colony for the rest of the country, as as uh, many have described West Virginia in the past. Um, and you know, I I decided to run in part out of frustration, um, in part because because it did look like an open field. You know, it didn't look like anyone else was going to run. And um, you mentioned in your introduction, West Virginia Can't Wait, um, this coalition of candidates that came together this year uh, to run on a, a shared value of not taking corporate money in our campaigns. And that was 
very exciting to me and, and something that I wanted to be part of. And so, so I jumped in the race and, you know, at the beginning we didn't, didn't know any of this, you know, we didn't know for sure that there wouldn't be a primary opponent. We certainly didn't have any expectation that there would be a global pandemic, but you know, here we are. Now the, uh, if I have the name of the paper uh, correctly, the Charleston Gazette, uh, they announced their endorsement just a little while ago. And in, uh, in district one and district three, they endorsed Republicans. And this is a state that's just been dominated by coal, which has to influence the way the newspaper thinks. Uh, and that said, they didn't endorse you, but they didn't endorse your Republican opponent either, which is kind of like as close to an endorsement of you as I think they could get. What's going on there? Well, you know, it's interesting. My opponent is certainly the, the weakest of the three Republican incumbent, incumbent congressmen or congresspeople that we have here in West Virginia. Um, and he himself um, actually was a state senator in Maryland who lost his state Senate seat and just moved right across the river into eastern West Virginia to run for and win this uh, this congressional seat when it was an open seat in 2014. Um, so he's not, uh, and he, he has taken really no steps to kind of ingratiate himself into the Republican establishment in the state. He's a very absentee congressperson um, he, he, to the point where, you know, uh, mayors of large cities uh, in West Virginia have told me that they have never met him. Um, so he, he just has very little presence in the state. So it's not really surprising to me that conservative establishment doesn't really have any strong rush to, to try to defend him. But you're, you are the antichrist, excuse me, but this is coal, you know, I know your district isn't all coal country. You've got a weird district. One end of your uh, yeah, right very little of coal country to be honest. But yeah, yes. I mean your dis district is relatively well off and close close to uh, Virginia, and uh, the one end of it I guess is near Ohio. But it's uh, mm -hmm. this isn't a district that would you know tend to want an environmental activist as their rep. But here you go. Well, you know it's interesting. I mean the the. Two biggest population centers in the district. Uh, one is Charleston, where we had this massive chemical spill six years ago that contaminated the drinking water. And, you know, there's definitely heightened concerns about drinking water safety here in this area ever since that. And the other population center in the district, uh, the sort of eastern panhandle part of West Virginia, um, Shepherdstown and Harper's Ferry, um, has been involved. There's been a big political um, fight there for the last couple of years over uh, a factory that the the state has tried to to bring into that area, much against the the wishes of the majority of the residents of that county. So there's been a big political battle over that. Uh, it's kind of become a, a local environmental justice fight with you know concerns about potential drinking water contamination in that area too. So um, there there might be uh, more concern for these issues than uh, people stereotypically think in West Virginia. Well, on the environmental issue and water issue, spill issue, but how much of your campaigns about climate change, because that raises the issue of phasing out of coal, and as you said in the beginning, how do you transition? I mean, do, let me ask this. I mean, do people get that coal is going to go one way or the other. It's just a question of sooner or later, and there needs to be a real conversation about transition, or do people still think they can hang on to coal? Well, I mean, that's the conversation that we've been trying to have in this campaign. And, you know, I do think that the, the conversation has been changing over the last decade. You know, I mean, it was 
predicted a decade ago that the coal industry was going to be collapsing here in West Virginia. And that that's exactly what we've seen. And, you know, it has had very little to do with environmental policy, quite honestly. It's had to do with uh, cheap natural gas and renewable energy that's been, uh, you know, taking away market share from from coal and power generation. And, um, you know, every, every election season, we have political candidates uh, who make empty promises about bringing back coal. Of course, Trump famously came in here in 2016 and said he was going to bring the mines back. Um, he hasn't been able to do it either. Um, and I think people are, you know, obviously not everyone, but I think there's, there's a growing recognition that, um, that th this transition is happening and that we need to, to do something about it. I mean, it's, it's not just enough to say that, uh, that, that the coal industry uh, is declining here. You know, we have to talk about what, what are we going to do uh, to to bring in new jobs and to to really repair and build the infrastructure that we need for a more diverse economy here. Because you know, we have broad sections of the district, broad sections of the state that don't have reliable internet. Um, safe drinking water is a concern in a lot of different parts of West Virginia, um, and there's there's billions of dollars of work to be done and and thousands of jobs to be had in environmental reclamation. You know, in putting some of these abandoned mine sites back to use and cleaning them up. So, um, you know, that those those kinds of narratives and ideas, I think, are things that, that people uh, can get behind. We, we all know that there's a lack of economic opportunity here and that, you know, if we keep on staying the course and, and uh, you know, uh, promising the return of the coal industry, that's not going to happen. It's not going to get any better here. Uh, I want to talk more about that, but let's stick on some of the political stuff first. Um, how did Trump do in your district in 2016? Um, how's he doing now? And how much are you finding when you're out talking to people that even your race is kind of a referendum on Trump or is it more locally focused? But start with a little background on how Trumpian was this district. <laughs> Um, so Trump won uh, about 68% uh, so in 2016. Yes, yes. So, you know, um, significant. And he's down uh, by about 10 to 12 points in the polls. So, you know, down around 57%. Um, so, you know, if that holds, that's a, that's a significant difference, obviously. And back in 2016, uh, my opponent, Congressman Mooney, uh, won with 58% of the vote again, in a district that Trump won with 68%. So he, uh, he, he tries his hardest to run on Trump's coattails. That, that's his kind of central campaign message that he's pro-Trump. But, um, you know, there's, there's only so much that he can do to, to compensate for the fact that he has really done nothing for the district here in the last six years and, you know, is not around, doesn't have in-person town halls, um, doesn't debate, and, you know, is, is a very as I said before, a very absentee congressperson. So I think if Trump's coattails are shorter this year, um, that's a real problem for him. And what are you hearing from people that voted for him? Uh, you know, so obviously a bunch have decided, according to the polling at least, not to do it again. And, mm -hmm. and, and but from, from people that are planning to do it again, uh, like your, your district, you know, sometimes people are that vote for Trump are depicted as sort of, uh, not didn't go to university, you know, sort of less educated, uh, which actually isn't true. The majority of uh, Trump voters are actually relatively well off and just don't like paying taxes or they're religious. Um, uh, but yeah, but a section of the working class and poor that never voted Republican before did get attracted to Trump. 
but your your district is the demographic is is a little more affluent if i'm correct and what what are these people saying um it's not it's not particularly affluent <laughs> i mean maybe it's it's more affluent than southern west virginia but that's got to be you know probably the poor, one of the poorest congressional districts in the country so you know we're we're a poor state and it's still a relatively poor and working class congressional district. Um, okay. So what are people telling will, you? Yeah. I mean, I, you know, I, I do run across people um, who uh, have voted for Trump in the past and some of whom even plan to vote for Trump again and are also voting for me. And a lot of the reason for that is really more to do with the, the failings of the current congressman than, uh, than anything related to Trump. And, you know, we've really, uh, made an effort to to focus this race on issues that matter to West Virginians, you know, healthcare, infrastructure investment, um, public education funding, all these things that um, are really affecting working families in the district and where, you know, quite frankly, uh, both political parties have have not uh, fought very hard for working families over the last couple of decades. Um, you know, I, I'm a supporter of Medicare for all, which is, you know, not the mainstream even within the Democratic Party. So, um, you know, I, I think that uh, I've heard people say that they're voting for Trump, but they don't like my opponent because he doesn't do anything for them. So that, you know, those, those are the kinds of uh, voters that we're hoping that we can win, win over here. And help us understand those people that are going to vote for Trump again, even if and especially ones that are willing to vote for you. How do, I understand they've got a passive uh, Republican there. But if you vote for Trump, you, in theory, you're buying into a lot of that ideology and you know, the hatred of the left, the hatred of socialized medicine and socialism and on and on. Uh, what are you actually hearing from people? Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of people are not like do not vote about uh, policy issues uh, or, you know, on ideological grounds quite as much as as you or I might think. I mean, I think there are a lot of people for whom, you know, Trump's Trump's attitude appeals to them. You know, they they want someone who hasn't been a, a career politician or who, you know, kind of is able to sell himself as anti-establishment, which, you know, is, I would argue, <laughs> inaccurate. But uh, but he certainly has managed to, to sell himself as anti-establishment. And there, there's a lot of anti-establishment uh, feeling here in West Virginia. And I think, you know, for good reason. I mean, we're we're one of the states that, you know, like a lot of rural America has really been left behind by by both parties over the last couple of decades. And, you know, it's we can talk all day about rising inequality in this country and, and the fact that uh, wages for working class Americans have basically stagnated for the last 40 years. And that there's a lot of that in West Virginia. So let's talk about coal. So what's your vision then of what happens with coal? What does the transition look like? And, you know, what are, you go to Congress, what are you going to be fighting for? So, I mean, I think uh, a first step has got to be infrastructure investment. I mean, that sounds boring, but it's hard to imagine how you can really bring in small businesses or light industry or, or even, you know, just people to move to an area that can't provide reliable internet uh, or safe drinking water in the 21st century. And, you know, I've talked to, but broadband internet is the single biggest issue that has come up uh, in this campaign. Uh, from constituents across the district, it, and well before the pandemic. I mean, people, and and I understand that. I mean, you you know, you have someone who moves back to the state, a young woman who wants to run her video production business where she grew up, and obviously that's very difficult if you don't have reliable internet. And 
that's that story is, is multiplied a hundred times across the state. And um, so, you know, I think federal infrastructure investment is key. Um, environmental reclamation is key. Um, you know, cleaning up uh, water pollution, the uh, environmental degradation, the coal ash ponds, um, all of that. Um, there's thousands of jobs to be had in that. And then, you know, we can talk about how we can diversify and grow, you know, other other strengths that West Virginia has, but hasn't really leaned on very much, like tourism and agriculture, um, and just you know, being able to to work from home in West Virginia and and uh, work remotely uh, in D.C. I mean, a lot of the district is is quite close to Washington D.C. and that that's a a growing population. And I think perhaps as a result of this pandemic, we may have more interest in in people uh, living in places like West Virginia. Well, how has the pandemic affected West Virginia? How badly hit? And this issue of finding it difficult to work from home, how does, how does that going to work for people? Yeah, no, I mean, it, it's, a, it's a real challenge. Um, and, you know, the, one of the big challenges, of course, has been with back to school this fall, which we weren't well, particularly prepared for. Um, and... Uh, you know, I've, I've heard stories of students having to drive an hour to sit in a parking lot to download their assignments for school, which, you know, is, is just ridiculous. And our, our students are getting left even further behind here. Um, in terms of the pandemic more broadly, I mean, our our cases are, are on the rise. Um, we're, you know, a relatively rural state, so we haven't obviously been as hard hit as major cities, but it, but it, is, a, it is a growing problem here. Uh, we're I don't know that we ever really got out of the first wave. I feel like we're in a slowly growing wave uh, for the last couple months. But well, uh, um, now, being such a pro-Trump state and pro-Trump district, how has that affected people? I mean, are they wearing? Are people wearing masks? It really varies across the state. I mean, there was a lot of resistance to it at first, which you know I think came directly from uh, from from our president's sort of dismissal of that whole idea. Um, but you know, in, in it's certainly, I think, been been catching on more, and you know, there there are definitely, um, especially in rural areas, thoughts that the whole thing is just kind of overblown, and uh, you know, that, that, but but you know, at, at the same time, uh, unfortunately, as the pandemic expands and and more people are directly affected by it, I think that attitude is has been declining over the last few months. I hate to go back to Trump again, but it's hard to talk about COVID and not get back to Trump. Uh, the, the so the, such complete disaster the way he treated the the crisis and in denial. Uh, you know, it's very similar to climate denial. I think it's a real attitude of anti-science, but for good re- for reasons that are clear. It's it's especially on climate. It's very profitable to be anti-science if you're getting money from the coal industry, which Trump does. But in terms of the people you're talking to, how do they get their heads around uh, what a disaster he's been on the pandemic, and and what that's going to mean? Uh, you know, the more the economy slows down, they're very likely it's going to have to be more closures. And I know they're claiming they're not, but the, it's the way the pandemic's out of control in many parts of the United States. 
Uh, a lot of epidemiologists are saying there's going to have to be another major closure of the economy. Uh, are, are people aware of all this? I mean, I think people are, uh, people certainly see how the pandemic has affected uh, their families and their communities. And, you know, the economic downturn has been pretty harsh here in West Virginia. I mean, we're, we're a poor state to begin with. Um, I been volunteering at a food pantry uh, for the last several months. And yeah, it's, it's very clear that demand for basic necessities like food is certainly up during this pandemic. Our campaign continues to, to run into people who've had major problems with the unemployment system in West Virginia or are struggling with eviction. So, um, you know, the, the need for uh, uh, economic relief package is, is severe here. Um, and yeah, I mean, I think people are, are frustrated with Congress's lack of action on that, to be sure. Um, and, you know, we, we're, the reality is that we're not going to, our economy is not going to pick up until we get this virus under control. I mean, people are not going to resume their, their normal habits until they feel safe doing so. Um, and that's, I think, a reality that, that I hope more and more people are are realizing, um, especially members of Congress. So you've you've mentioned a couple of times during the interview so far that it was the leadership of both parties have really failed in West Virginia. How is the leadership of the Democratic Party treating your candidacy? Are you on their radar? I guess the local party, obviously, you are. Are you getting any money? Are you getting any help? Are you getting any opposition? Um, we haven't gotten any opposition uh, internally. Um, you know, the National Democratic Party has written off West Virginia, I think, um, you know, not just me, but in general, I think they uh, have priorities that are, are elsewhere, unfortunately, and have for a while. Um, you know, uh, we've gotten some some great support um, from local, you know, like county level Democratic committees uh, across the district. And, you know, I think the the state party is kind of more focusing on on state level races like the the governor's race and, and that kind of thing. So, you know, it's kind of been a I don't know. <laughs> There's not not a whole lot to say about it, honestly. So you're kind of off their radar because they figure you don't have any yeah. chance of winning. And and now, like maybe you do, but I guess they figure the house really isn't in play anyway, so they have other things to focus on. But it's going to right. But you right. do win. It's going to be a fascinating uh, tale of how how that your relationship with the people of of District Two. Um, talk a bit about some of the environmental issues you've been involved with. Uh, start with this issue of. Uh, uh, defeat corporate bailouts for electric utilities and, and the whole uh, what's happening with coal and such. Absolutely. Yeah. So um, one of the things that I was involved in uh, for several years, um, both of our major electric utilities in West Virginia, uh, which are American Electric Power and First Energy, um, uh, both were trying to get uh, citizens of West Virginia, their, their ratepayers, to uh, essentially bail out uncompetitive coal plants that were losing money uh, in the in the you know competitive power markets and that you know is a is a reflection direct reflection of the the downturn in the the coal markets and the fact that more and more electric utilities are turning to natural gas and renewables and and kind of driving coal out of the market and so you know uh, we fought several battles along those lines uh, related to, to multiple coal plants and uh, won one of them and didn't win another one. But, you know, I think it's, uh, it, it certainly also opened my eyes just to the, the power of the 
utility lobby in the state uh, and of course the the coal industry lobby um, and uh, I think that it's hard to to uh, underestimate the power of those those industries and in, in terms of you know not only the money that they throw around in elections but also just the the lobbying influence and the the political uh, influence that they wield in regulatory agencies too, and 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 a lot of influence within the West Virginia Democratic Party leadership is that not right? Yeah, I mean, you know, the the Democratic Party in West Virginia. I think people outside of the state may not realize this, but this West Virginia is historically a very democratic state um, in the sense that the the Democratic Party controlled our state legislature for. Uh, more than 80 years from the New Deal era from the 1930s until 2014. Um, and so, you know, it's, it's no surprise that uh, the Democratic Party became very caught up uh, in the politics of of coal and, you know, very much was a, a backer of the, the coal industry uh, during that time to to maintain their, their political uh, power in the state. So, you know, when people are frustrated with the Democratic Party, um, you know, looking at the fact that West Virginia has perpetually been one of the poorest states in the country and perpetually taken advantage of by out-of-state corporations. Um, you know, I, I can sympathize why people are, are frustrated with the Democratic Party here. And what do you say uh, when, they, when they accuse the Democratic Party of uh, being guilty of helping to create the, you know, the poverty, really, in West Virginia? Yeah, I mean, I just, you know, to me, it's, it's an argument for West Virginia can't wait and for candidates that are not beholden to industry, whether it's the coal industry or anything else, you know, candidates who are going to be unapologetic in fighting for policies that, that working families need, like universal health care, like funding for public education. I mean, another great example of this is, uh, you know, we've had these these massive teacher strikes in West Virginia over the last couple of years. Um, and uh, one of the, the big demands has been around funding for public employee health insurance. And, uh, you know, over the last decade, West Virginia uh, passed major corporate tax cuts at the state level uh, and essentially financed those by cuts to public education and cuts to uh, among other things, the public employee health insurance program. So you can see very clearly what happens when you have political leadership that's more interested in catering to corporate interests than to uh, to the public at large and saw West Virginians rebelling against that in the strikes. And that was really interesting, a teacher strike, because, you know, the state, which is so pro-Trump and in theory it would be so anti-union, but in fact, the teachers actually got quite a bit of support. Yeah, it was incredible. There was an incredible level of community support. And um, West Virginia also has a very strong labor history. And I, when I was down at the Capitol uh, during the strike, just, you know, walking around and talking to people about, you know, why they were there, a lot of the teachers referenced, you know, their family history in labor unions. Like, oh, my grandpa went on strike in the mines or my father was on strike in the steel mills. And you know, there's a real strong sense in West Virginia that you don't cross a picket line. So uh, people's politics are a lot more complicated than just, you know, boiling it down to did they vote for Trump or not? Yeah, in the 1930s, West Virginia was a center of very militant miners, uh, minor mining unions. Uh, do you have a handle on what happened? How do you go from such militant progressive mining unions to a majority Trump? or a Republican-supported party? Yeah, I mean, I think some of it has to do with, um, you know, the 
decline of the labor movement, obviously nationally over the last many decades, and and the fact that there was you know a deliberate attempt to to purge labor unions of their more radical leadership, uh, starting in the in the 40s or 50s, I believe, um, which certainly has played out for for negative consequences for the labor movement as a whole. Um, and yeah, I mean, I think it just it goes back to to West Virginia being more of an anti-establishment state. I mean, when when the Democratic Party is kind of not offering any real alternative to uh, economic poverty here, people turn to the Republican Party, which of course you know didn't didn't offer any real solutions either. But um, you know, people are I think just frustrated here, and you you saw that in voting for Trump. You saw it in the fact that Bernie Sanders won every county in the Democratic primary that same year, and you saw it in the the teachers' strikes when we had thousands of teachers in our capital chanting about raising taxes on the gas industry to fund public education and public employee health insurance, which is not the kind of demand that would have come out of either of our you know relatively corporate parties here in West Virginia. How did Obama do? Honestly, I don't remember. <laughs> I mean, he didn't win West Virginia, but I don't remember what the what the margin was. Now these teachers, you know, they have. Their families, their friends, their families, the extended families. Uh, so it's it's very, as you say, it's very complicated the politics because uh, the people really supported the demand of the teachers, which was to a large extent for smaller classrooms and more resources for the kids, and 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 also put this together with something you said that some people that are voting for Trump are, are voting for you. Uh, and you're advocating health, Medicare for all, uh, universal health care. How do they? Do you find people support that policy, but they can still vote for Trump just because they like something about the guy's personality, which is a little weird? But I see why people might. You know, I mean, I don't know that I've ever had a conversation that gets into that level of policy detail with someone. You know, I, I've certainly, you know, I, as I said, I, I know folks who are voting for me and also for Trump, but I don't know if it's that they specifically support Medicare for all, or they're just kind of willing to, uh, to go along with it. And maybe it's a good idea, but they just really don't like Congressman Mooney. Um, but I think, you know, writ large, uh, Medicare for all is a popular idea here in West Virginia. I mean, re- remembering back to Bernie's 2016 campaign, I mean, that was really the core issue that he uh, lifted up and campaigned on, at least when he was here in West Virginia. And so uh, that was, you know, very popular when he was uh, campaigning on it here. And um, everyone I know in West Virginia practically has a healthcare horror story of, you know, themselves or someone in their family struggling to access uh, the healthcare that they need. And, you know, um, Medicare for all, I think if, if explained to people is, is a popular idea. I mean, no one, no one is a huge defender or very few people are huge defenders of the private insurance industry. How uh, powerful is uh, evangelical uh, Christianity in your district, in the state? How much of that makes up Trump support? I mean, it's certainly there. Um, You know, it's uh, West Virginia is not in the Bible belt uh, nearly to the extent of other states to our south, though. Um, so, you know, I think, uh, you know, the, the issue of uh, abortion, though, is certainly a one, one that um, some people, it is, you know, it's their deciding issue when they go to the polls and vote. But, you know, we had an anti-abortion uh, uh, referendum on the ballot here in West Virginia in 2018, um, and it really uh, won by a much narrower margin than people thought. I think it was like 51 to 49 or something. So, you know, it's a 
it's a less uh, less of that than than you might think. Are people talking about the Supreme Court at all? Not in like everyday conversation. I mean, you know, I certainly am, and I'm alarmed that we could have a Supreme Court that uh, takes away health care for millions of Americans during a pandemic. I mean, I think that's completely insane. Um, but it's not uh, a conversation that that I hear a whole lot or that I get asked about a whole lot. So if you win and you're off to Washington, uh, I guess you start uh, allying with some of the other progressive uh, Congress people. And how do you see this fight within the Democratic Party taking place? Because there's a lot of people that supported Sanders uh, who are voting against Trump. And they're not certainly voting for, you know, what they call corporate Democrats. And people are saying that, you know, the real battle's going to break out once Biden wins, assuming he wins. And once he's in office, uh, this temporary truce between the left and progressive sections of the party uh, will be over. Um, how do you see that playing out? And, and if you're there, how do, you, how do you see your role in it? Right. I mean, I think, well, I mean, there's a lot of hypotheticals in that, right? I mean, one is assuming about, that about Biden nine, wins. About nine <laughs> ifs. Hang it, nine ifs. Yeah, right, right. Um, so, you know, it's a, it's a little hard to answer in that sense, but, you know, I and I strongly uh, uh, think that we need to to defeat Trump uh, here in a couple of weeks. I mean, um, I think that. Uh, yeah, I don't think <laughs> probably don't need to say more on that, but, you know, it, it'll depend on how many folks are elected who are coming out of the more sort of Bernie Sanders wing of the party, the folks who are, are not taking corporate contributions in their campaigns and. You know, we'll see how big of a, a caucus that becomes uh, within the House. Um, but, you know, I, I think these ideas have real, uh, real, real potency. I mean, there's and there's growing social movements to fight for things like Medicare for all and action on climate change. And, you know, that's not going away. And it'll, it's unclear now what the what the balance of forces around that is going to look like in January. But um, certainly the uh, the. The, the folks who have, have brought those ideas forward are, are not going anywhere. And the ideas themselves, you know, seem to be uh, pretty popular in the general public. And so uh, we'll see. But I mean, I'm certainly going to be fighting for the, the issues that have been in our platform since the beginning, which, you know, include Medicare for all and, uh, you know, debt free public education uh, and action on the climate crisis. So I get that in your district, it's, it's, it's very locally focused it's, and it's less a referendum on Trump than it is about the incumbent who doesn't seem to know how to find the district uh, in his travels. Um, but, but this issue of Trump is a, is a big issue and he's down in the polls in West Virginia. Uh, what do you say to people that actually might be on the fence about this election? They don't much like Biden, but they're, they are getting sick of Trump, but They've been with Trump. They don't know whether to leave him. Uh, what, what do you say? Um, I mean, if I'm just speaking for myself in terms of our election, I mean, I would just focus on our race and the fact that I'm not taking corporate money. And, you know, we've seen uh, time and again that the establishment of both political parties uh, is not really fighting very hard for working people and is more interested in in lobbyists and donors. Um, and that's certainly the case with, with my opponent. So, you know, that, that's kind of the pitch that I make to people. Yeah. I mean, you know, Trump is going to win here in West Virginia and that's, 
really not not the battle that we're fighting in this campaign. We're you know just trying to to get elected here on a platform uh, that supports working people and that builds the West Virginia Can't Wait movement uh, to to continue to run uh, candidates here in West Virginia who are really going to to change the narrative away from what it's been in, in both parties. All right. Well, thanks very much for joining us, Kathy. And let's talk again after the election. So you'll either be a Congress, a con- I don't know, is it Congressperson or Congresswoman? What do they say these Congresswoman, days? Congresswoman, Congressperson, whichever you prefer, okay. or, or I'll be unemployed. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, we'll talk, we'll talk again after that. Thanks for joining us. Of course. Thanks, Paul. And thank you for joining us on the analysis.news podcast. And again, don't forget the, the donate button if you haven't done it yet. And thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.